Welcome to the Exvangelical Therapist Podcast. I am your host, A, and this is a podcast about the intersections of evangelicalism, exvangelicalism, mental health, and social justice. You might hear a color commentator in the background, and that is little A, my cat, and she loves to provide a little color commentary here and there. I hope you enjoy. So we're going to dive into the recent-ish history of evangelicalism in the 20th century. So I'm going to break this up into two parts for the 20th century because there's a lot of ground to cover with this. And the reason why I am addressing the history, if this is your first time listening to the podcast, is because... For us to understand what is happening to evangelicalism today, why people are leaving, why people are deconstructing, and just its powerful influences in politics today and social justice or lack thereof, then it's very important for us to understand the history. So this is something that therapists do and social workers do whenever looking at what a person is coming in for. We need to understand what the foundation was for us to understand the structure of what is happening. So without further ado, let's get started. A fundamental difference between Catholics and evangelicals today is that a lot of evangelicals, not all, but a lot of them, believe in abstaining from mood-altering substances um, and that, that's what they call it. They say mood-altering or mind-altering substances. And this has become a very important piece of evangelicalism today. And they use the verse to back up this belief, Ephesians 5.18, Neither be drunk with wine, in which is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So they say, well, any kind of alcohol or intake of cannabis, like, this is altering your mind and it can prevent you from being in contact with God through the Holy Spirit. So this is this belief there. So in a lot of communion, and, and I've talked about communion a lot and this battle really between what communion is amongst Christians, a lot of evangelicals have actually switched out the wine for grape juice because of this. And it wasn't always like this. And it really started with the temperance movement. And then what ended up happening from the temperance movement was the prohibition. In the 1800s, people started realizing how substances were affecting their families. And they were looking at it particularly from a standpoint of how substances were affecting fathers and families. Um, because with mothers, they were expected to be more chaste and more in self-control and not necessarily engaging as much with substances. And so during the 1800s, there was a really great rise in the use of um, hard liquors, also cocaine, opium. Um, that's not to say that women did not engage with this. I mean, women did historically. They would even sometimes give opium to their babies 
who had colic. Um, And that's how they would quiet down their babies is by giving them opium. So in the 1800s, there was this really rampant drug and liquor issue going on. Um, And so basically there were these women who had been converted as a result of the Second Great Awakening. And they saw it as their role to keep a household in order and to be able to be the ones in the household to promote self-control. So they started advocating for what was called temperance or what we know today as abstaining from alcohol or drugs. So um, during this time of the Great Awakening, there were different states that started setting prohibition laws. However, this wasn't blanketed across the entire United States. And, um, and it was encouraging temperance and perfection in the Second Great Awakening. So as people were converting, this is where they started getting this idea. Now, there was this, uh, this union called the Women's Christian Temperance Union. And it is actually still in existence today. And it was founded in Cleveland in 1874. Gonna take a drink of water here. It is ragweed season where I'm at. And oh my goodness, what a time. <clears throat> okay. So this union has a pretty interesting history. Um, I'm not going to go deep into it, um, but the union originally was feminist and they uh, supported the suffrage movement, the women's suffrage movement, because they saw that social reform as also being biblical. However, this changed in time after the death of one of its original leaders, named Francis Willard in 1898. So after her death, then they started rethinking this because they went back to this belief of saying, well, women are supposed to be submissive. Men are supposed to be the head of the household. This was their belief. And so then they started retracting, hey, you know, we are not really involved in this feminist movement anymore but we are still going to be involved in the temperance movement. So I ended up going on to their website and I just want to read some things from their website today. And now they are based in Evanston, Illinois. So here's what their mission statement says. The National Women's Christian Temperance Union purposes to educate all people with the help of God, to total abstinence from alcohol, illegal drugs, and tobacco as a way of life. Parents with children under six years of age are encouraged to participate in a dedication ceremony. I think that this mission statement is very interesting because in these different revivals that are had with evangelicalism, this is still preached in, in these revivals, that God can save a person from addiction. Whenever the reality is that addiction is a disease. So it changes a person's neurochemistry, the brain structure, 
can become different as a result of addiction. And yet there is this fantastical belief that a person can be saved by this if they just become a Christian or if they just pray or repent enough. Now, um, in looking at research, spirituality can help a person in, uh, in maintaining sobriety. However, it is not the end-all be-all for a person's recovery. I'll talk more about that in another episode, but here's something else on, on their website. Child dedication, which is something, again, that is taught a lot about in evangelicalism. So a white ribbon is tied to a child's wrist. This is very similar to a purity ring that is given to children in evangelicalism, even though that the Women's Christian Temperance Union says that they're non-denominational. But I digress. So then it continues to say, the adult promises with the help of God to teach the child Christian principles, including abstinence from alcohol and other harmful drugs. So this is basically a Christian version of the D.A.R.E. program. Then uh, it lists their pledge. So if anyone wants to be in the union, they have to make this pledge that says that I may give my best service to home and country, yet they say that they're not affiliated with the United States. So (laughs) there's... There is a lot of dissonance in this. That I may give my best service to home and country. I promise God helping me not to buy, drink, sell, or give alcoholic liquors while I live. Wow. So this is a life commitment. From all tobacco, I'll abstain and never take God's name in vain because they believe that taking any what they consider to be mind-altering substances, is taking the name of God in vain. Then it says, I promise by the help of God never to use alcoholic beverages, other narcotics, or tobacco, and to encourage everyone else to do the same, fulfilling the commandment, keep thyself pure. So if we're going to look at this even deeper and further, then that would mean If there should be no narcotics, let's take, for instance, someone who is experiencing cancer and is having stage three cancer, then according to this, this person should not be given narcotics, even though that this person is in an extreme amount of pain. So they would have to continue to suffer. And I I guess my thought is they're talking about what they perceived to be benevolence here. But my question is, how is that benevolent? By having this very black and white view that could lead to harm of other people. They have principles that they listed on their website, and they have five principles here. The first one is what they call sanctity of human life. So we've heard a lot more about this because of Roe v. Wade being overturned. So this is, um, to define it, it is an opposition to physician-assisted suicide, euthanasia, and abortion for any reasons. So again, 
where is the compassion in this? What if a mom and baby are going to die because of a very high-risk pregnancy? Or what would happen, you know, if a person is on life support for five years? What then? You know, what happens with that person? What happens with the family? So this black and white thinking can cause more people to suffer. The second part is freedom of religion. Again, they say that they are not affiliated by the government, yet they do have a place in speaking about government laws, um, including the overturn of Roe v. Wade. So they say freedom of religion. They say that um, they will not accept persecution for their beliefs. So maybe what I'm saying right now um, and bringing out these different discrepancies might be uh, persecution in their eyes. I I don't know. <laughs> but um, from what I experienced in growing up in evangelicalism, if people would bring out different discrepancies, it would be called persecution, which I think was interesting, um, that they could have freedom of speech, but not others. The third principle here is sexual purity, sex only within the confines of marriage. So you take, for instance, another gray issue here. Let's say a person gets married, their spouse dies, or they have a divorce, and then they start dating again. Well, guess what? They're not able to have sex until they are married to that person, even though that they have had sex before within the confines of marriage. The fourth principle here is freedom from what they call harmful influences. So this is not engaging in what they consider to be mind-altering substances. And then the fifth principle, the last principle, is being um, opposing to gambling, so not supporting any kind of gambling. Um, they also consider some governmental practices to be versions of gambling. They believe that you must be certain in everything. If you are not certain in a specific thing, then that is considered to be gambling. So that is the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Um, if I said all those words, yes, I said them all in the line. I mean, it is really a mouthful to say the Women's Christians Temperance Union. But anyhow, so there was the 18th Amendment in 1919, and it banned the manufacture, transportation, and sales of intoxicating liquor. And so people thought that this was going to solve all of these different societal issues and concerns in the U.S. by having this happen. But instead, it ended up leading to a significant increase of gang violence and organized crime. So much so that this movement started losing traction and support. And then people said, you know what, I guess we just need to let people make their own choices. And as the support waned, then there was the 21st Amendment, which ratified the 18th Amendment, ending the prohibition at the end of 1933. And uh, some people say that FDR celebrated the repeal 
by enjoying a dirty martini, which was his favorite alcoholic drink. So then comes the women's suffrage movement, but both the temperance movements and the suffrage movements were intertwined for a period of time. And with the women's suffrage movement, it was really this point of contention amongst Protestants, evangelicals who were saying for a long time that women should be silent. They shouldn't be allowed to speak. So saying, hey, actually women should be given equal rights to vote, then it really was divisive in the evangelical church at the time. And so these women who are participating in the women's suffrage movement, they saw the suffrage movement as actually being biblical because they saw it as them being given the right to life and to speak as a result of the life that they had been given. However, their opposition was saying that they need to be staying at home because that's what the Bible says, is that women should be staying at home and that they should be there for uh, for moral support at home. But then what the women were saying was, well, if we keep staying at home, then this addiction in society is going to continue and to be explosive. And then it's going to lead to more immorality in, in society, what, what they were considering to be immorality at, at the time. So it was just this going back and forth, back and forth. Now, so with the women's suffrage movement, a lot of times it's looked at like, wow, these women are basically saints. They're, they're amazing with what they are doing. But I do just need a call to mind to this. In ways, the women's suffrage movement was racist. A lot of the people who were leading the suffrage movement were saying that white women should have been given the right to vote before black men. And that is just, honestly, to me, it just is sickening. They were also calling for the 15th Amendment to be repealed because they said that it should be repealed to include gender. And rather than celebrating about Black men being given the right to vote, they were being dismissive. And I just have to bring that up because I think it's very important for us to know this in our awareness rather than to be glazing over these different social justice issues that happened um, during our history. So eventually, in 1920, the 19th Amendment was passed, giving women the right to vote. And the women were very excited about this because they thought that they were going to have more of a say in government and would see a really large social change in what they were hoping for. However, it turned on its head, just like what happened with the Prohibition Movement. And the 1920s became known as the Jazz Age. And then more and more what they considered to be immorality increased rather than decreased. The thing about evangelicalism was that it was not catching up with the rapidly changing times because you have the Industrial Revolution and then came World War I. 
And with having these really significant events happen in history, it was just the evangelical church wasn't able to match with the rapidly progressing nature of what was going on with with society at the time. So I think this led to a lot of these different frustrations and also having the evangelical movement be very unpredictable as well. And this is something that they did not anticipate after having the Second Great Awakening, where a lot of evangelicals during and after the Second Great Awakening thought that the world was going to be converted to evangelical Christianity, which that's not what happened. A lot of people became much more doubtful and skeptical about what was going on in the world and how could God be present in a world like this. And it goes back to what was happening during the Enlightenment era, where it's like, how can God be a good God and have all of this happen around us? So World War I happened in between the years of 1914 to 1918, and it piqued evangelical interest and concern into the Revelation prophecies because they were like, this is the apocalypse, because they were seeing war, famine, disease, death. Approximately 40 million people. 40 million. That's wow. So approximately 40 million people around the world died during World War One. So they saw this as being apocalyptic, and they saw this as being God's judgment on what was happening to society at the time. So Christians were becoming less certain about their stance in the world and more pessimistic, which is why they were saying, hey, this is going to be the end of the world. And this was really whenever that revelation preaching started becoming more and more um, heavy within um, within that, that sect of Christianity. So there was this division of beliefs, again, <laughs> division, that's the... The word of the day here. There was division of beliefs of revelation. There was the premillennialists, the postmillennialists, and the amillennialists. So, with the postmillennialists, what they believed was that a Christian utopia would be made on earth and there would be a thousand golden years uh, before Jesus comes back and brings heaven to earth. So, postmillennialists. This was a very predominant thought during the great or the second great awakening because they were seeing mass conversions. But then this belief started to wane whenever they started seeing that people were leaving the faith um, due to the industrial revolution. Uh, more urbanization, and then World War One. So then more people started becoming premillennialists, which is primarily conservative evangelicals with the belief that there is this rapture where basically it's the whole left behind series where people just disappear into thin air who are the what they call the true believers and um, and so they disappear, they go to heaven, 
And then there's judgment on the earth. And it's just the apocalypse is happening. And then they believed that um, that people who came from Israel would convert to evangelical Christianity. And then they would be left to fulfill Revelation prophecies and then become ones to rule all of the nations on the earth. So this is a predominant belief that started as a result of World War I and continues today. So this is why a lot of evangelicals uh, send their money to help Israel, including Israel um, having war with other countries because they see this as being a support for the Revelation prophecy. And they, so evangelical Christians who are not Jewish, they believe that they will be blessed in heaven if, and through the ends of times, that, that they will be blessed if they give money to fund Israel for war. And this all goes back to the pre-millennialists. Now, this last revelation belief is the amillennialists. And this is the belief that revelation is not literal, that Satan is metaphorical, hell is metaphorical, heaven is metaphorical, and that it is just what's bad that happens on earth, that that is a person's hell, that Satan being bound up, that just means that So Satan being bound up, this was a reference to Revelation saying that God ties Satan up and then he's able to rule the world. Um, And so there are evangelicals who believe this and but then they believe it in a metaphorical sense where they see it as that no bad things can really be happening or prevent people from experiencing the goodness of God and that people can have the opportunity to experience heaven on earth. It's kind of interesting because with the amillennialists, this is a belief that seems to trickle more down towards people who have one foot in and one foot out of the evangelical church or people who have left the church of having this belief that things are allegorical and that we can experience heaven or hell on earth based upon the choices and the decisions that we make. So people born during the World War I era were called the lost generation. And this was a term that was coined by Ernest Hemingway. And it's very interesting, the lost generation, because this is a, a quote that has been used a lot in evangelicalism not only to reference the people of the World War I era that were born during that time, but for the next generations that came after them. So Hemingway called people the lost generation to indicate disillusionment and experimentation with sex, drugs, and alcohol. So Ernest Hemingway didn't necessarily see this lostness as being a bad thing, but just rather this change that was happening in society. People weren't embracing certainty anymore, but were embracing questioning. And he welcomed this. I mean, something that Hemingway did a lot was he would go to what were called salons. And salons were some of the greatest thinkers and artists at the time would gather together 
and they would just discuss questions and have these discussions for hours and hours, which ended up inspiring these artists and thinkers and musicians, writers to be creating very prolific work because they were trying to work through these questions together. So as a result of the lost generation, there were coming up these this new wave of preachers and these couple of preachers during this time that were very uh, popular were Billy Sunday and Mordecai Ham. So uh, these are two preachers that still get quoted in evangelical churches today, which is interesting because they are both very controversial. So I just want to read some quotes by Billy Sunday to you. Billy Sunday used to be a a baseball player, um, and he ended up becoming a preacher, and he had a very intense style of preaching. So here we go. He said, I don't believe your own bastard theory of evolution either. I believe it's pure jackass nonsense. Yeah, that's uh, that's how forward he was about that. It's uh, it's interesting because if we take out what is considered to be profanity in the evangelical church, this uh, this rhetoric is still being taught today in evangelicalism. Here's a here's another gem for you. He said, nowadays we think we are too smart to believe in the virgin birth of Jesus and too well educated to believe in the resurrection. That's why people are going to the devil in multitudes. So (laughs) again, this is something that is still has echoes of rhetoric in evangelicalism today, which is why it tends to be discouraged in evangelical churches to go to non-Christian universities because they believe that these people will become too smart (laughs) or too well-educated to believe in miracles in the Bible. Then here's another quote here. Uh, It's a damnable insult. Some of the rigs a lot of fool women are wearing up and down our streets. So that is 1920s talk for literally body shaming and also slut shaming women. And yet again, in the evangelical church today, women are objectified for what they wear. There can be a very strict dress code within evangelical traditions. Um, A lot of evangelical churches, if there's going to be a pool party or a swim time, will ban the wearing of bikinis or ban wearing shorts that go above the fingertips. Um, So it's still happening today, just uh, less colorful language than this last last quote that I want to share with you is he said, I'm against sin. I'll kick it as long as I have a foot. I'll fight it as long as I have a fist. I'll butt it as long as I have a head. I'll bite it as long as I've got a tooth. And when I'm old and fistless and footless and toothless, I'll gum it until I go home to glory and it goes home to perdition. You know what? I uh, I actually heard that quote <laughs> whenever I was in church. 
uh, a pastor literally said that from the pulpit and it was a very, uh, I, I remember it being a very uncomfortable descriptor, right? You know, like gumming it, like, I'm just like, whoa. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, if I heard it, let's say 15 years ago, maybe it's still being said today. So, and, and I mean, evangelicals really believe that they are under persecution and that this is how intense they have to fight for their beliefs. And again, a lot of this um, perceived persecution is just bringing up to light, like, hey, these things are not adding up. They're not making sense. They're not aligning together. And, but then that's considered to be persecution. And so it becomes really this conflict and contention amongst Americans, particularly people who are still in these deep-seated beliefs and then the people who are deconstructing. As for Mordecai Ham, he was vehemently anti-Semitic, anti-Catholic, and racist. And um, because of anti-Semitism, the U.S., did not join World War II as soon as what other countries did. And the U.S. also created a, a blueprint for eugenics that the Nazis ended up using. And anti-Semitism was backed up by a lot of evangelicals. Take, for instance, Lynchburg, Virginia, where Liberty University is the largest evangelical school in the entire world. Well, Lynchburg, Virginia, its history is that was one of the forerunners for the eugenics movement in the United States. So Mordecai Ham also believed in um, that abstinence could be obtained through conversion to Christianity. So abstinence from alcohol and from drugs. So he thought that people needed to convert to Christianity and that that was the problem with addiction. And that's not true. People can be in recovery from addiction and not be Christians. I think that this is something very important to say because even in AA, NA, it is still encouraged in a lot of AA and NA groups that you need to be Christian or have some sort of Christian beliefs in order to be in recovery. Again, that is not true. It is not evidence-based to be saying this. And then lastly, Mordecai Ham preached politics from the pulpit, and he condemned people who were going to vote for Democrats. Again, this is still done today, um, especially with a lot of white evangelicals voting for Trump and having this be encouraged um, behind evangelical pulpits. So lastly, that I want to address here today is the Great Depression that occurred from 1929 to 1939. Protestant leaders were blaming the Great Depression on sin. And because of this, I, I mean, this isn't what people wanted to hear. They wanted to be given their needs. They needed more resources. They didn't want to be blamed. They didn't want to be shamed for what was going on. And so less people 
started attending church. So more people were just staying at home. And I mean, and it was hard to get to church because of, you know, not having the means to pay for gas to go to church or needing to save your horse too, really, um, so that your horse could do the work in the fields and in the labor. Because again, horses cost money. So budgets decreased, memberships decreased, ministers were fired, and churches closed during the Great Depression. And this is not what the Protestants, the evangelicals anticipated. They thought that this was going to bring a revival because they thought that people were going to realize that they needed to rely on God during this time because they couldn't rely on um, what they had. But things, again, were very difficult to predict during, during this time. And rather than the churches helping people provide for their needs, this is whenever um, the U.S. started getting significant funding for social work and social services and social services really replace the work that the churches could not provide. And this is still happening today. So historically speaking, churches believed that it was their work to be helping people in the community, but then their resources got very limited. So then they're starting to question, you know, what is the purpose then? What is the mission? So that leaves us on a cliffhanger for today. I hope that you enjoyed the podcast and until next Sunday, happy Sunday. Mm-hmm.